Take a moment to get set up here. You'll want to take out your sermon outline that says Christ the Lord on the top. Today we are in Psalm 72. So if you would like to turn there, it's just about right in the middle of your Bible. So if you turn there, you should be in Psalms or Isaiah. If you're in Isaiah, go left. If you're in the Psalms, just find your way to number 72. So we're in our Advent series on Christmas in the Psalms. We're looking at five Messianic Psalms that point us towards the Messiah. And um, this is one of them. And uh, this week, I've really come to appreciate uh, this psalm. So... I will go through it as we go, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and uh, we need it uh, this season especially. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing messianic psalm to learn more about your son Jesus. So we ask you this morning to give us the grace to hope for the coming of the Lord. May we learn how to pray like your servant, King David, in the service of your servant, King Jesus. Lord, we've all felt overwhelmed from time to time, often during this Advent season. And during those times, we need to get a glimpse of the greatness of the Lord. So we pray that you would use this psalm to give us that glimpse, to make us to be a people of prayer, to remind us of what your reign will be like, and to give us hope. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it hasn't been an easy week. Uh, The whole Christmas season can be kind of wearing. Uh, Several of us are fighting colds and coughs. A few of you are battling the flu. Others among us are battling uh, getting up too early and staying up too late. Some of you are way overcommitted at this time of year and you can't keep up. And a few of you are checking D, all of the above. And it can be also overwhelming. And some of you have had not just hard weeks, but a hard year. You've lost friends, family, broken relationships. Your health is a constant challenge. And the bank account isn't all that healthy either. And when those overwhelming days come, particularly at this time of year, we have to ask, what does Christmas look like for you? However, it was a hard week also that a few PCA pastors and families are facing the worst weeks of their life. Let me tell you about a few of them. The first one's name is Philip. Uh, He is a friend of mine. He's a church planter along the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. Three weeks after he planted the church, he was diagnosed with cancer, stage four melanoma. He's been through all the treatments, but it's spread everywhere. He entered an experimental treatment program at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, one of the top cancer 
uh, hospitals in the country. And the day before the, the clinical trials began, they discovered 18 new tumors in his brain. On Friday, his wife, Lori, wrote the following. On Monday, this past Monday, or this coming Monday to tomorrow, Philip will begin a treatment plan of whole brain radiation, an IV immunotherapy, and he'll return to the oral chemo trial meds because they were at least shrinking some of the tumors. As is obvious, this is an unbelievably aggressive and angry raging cancer. The melanoma is systematically spreading and has found a way around everything that's been flung at it. They're about to fling everything at it all at once to try and stabilize the spread and then regroup with a less violent approach. Please pray for Philip as he endures this necessary assault. This week has brought doggone daunting news. There's nothing good in the report. I'm personally still trying to process 18 new brain tumors in two weeks. There's so much that's uncertain and scary and crushingly heavy to the heart. There's no simple plan to put in place, but we trust our doctor is doing everything she creatively can to try and slay this dragon of a disease. Yesterday, Philip and Lori Seeley flew home, likely for the last time. What does Christmas look like for them? Things are worse in Winsboro, South Carolina. Shane was the pastor of Lebanon Presbyterian Church, uh, the PCA church in town. He been there for two years. And on Tuesday, December 3rd, Shane was involved in a head-on collision in Winsboro. He was taken to the Level 1 Trauma Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. He had extensive injuries and was in a coma. And over the next week, he had multiple surgeries to try and save his life. But this past Wednesday, his family called in hospice. And at 2.34 Friday morning, Thomas Shane Martin passed into glory. He not only left behind a grieving church, but his wife, Kara, and his two sons, Luke and Owen, who are stunned and overwhelmed beyond measure. What does Christmas look like for them? Since I wrote that, I've discovered that my friend Perry McCall, his son Andrew, I've shared his story with you before, is back in the hospital the recovery from leukemia is going well, but his heart is overstressed, and they're not sure what to do. And some of you that have been here a while may remember Mo Leverett. Uh, Mo preached here and led worship here back in 2004. And on Friday, his daughter passed away suddenly. She was in her 20s. All four are friends of mine, all four are PCA pastors. And I share those hard stories because I think today's passage speaks to them. I think it helps us to answer the question, what does Christmas look like for them? These folks are looking to the Lord right now, all of them. They know him, they love him, and they want to know if their faith is in the right place. Can they trust the gospel when the bottom falls out? And Psalm 72 says they can. Psalm 72 is a unique messianic psalm. 
and that it addresses the reign of three different kings. As best as we can tell, it is a prayer written by King David for and about his son, King Solomon. But neither David nor Solomon ever perfectly fulfilled all the requests in this prayer. And ultimately, they're only fulfilled completely and perfectly by the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm not only asks God to grant these requests on behalf of the king, but it also describes what his reign should look like in the case of Solomon and what it will look like in the case of Christ. And that's important because we all go through lots of tough times in life, some worse than others, usually at moments of great inconvenience, and often they're just overwhelming. And when we get overwhelmed, one of the great comforts for our souls is to get a glimpse of the greatness of our Lord. Let me say that again. One of the great comforts for our souls is to get a glimpse of the greatness of our Lord. It is that glimpse of the greatness of our Lord that provides the answer that the Seelies need, <clears throat> the answer that the Martin family needs, that the Leverett family needs, that the McCall family needs. It provides the answer that we need. When everything comes crashing down, sometimes your only recourse is to look up and to get a glimpse of the greatness of our Lord. And Psalm 72 gives us five snapshots, five glimpses, five looks at what the reign of King Jesus looks like. And again, these come to us as prayers, but they're also descriptions. So turn with me to Psalm 72. <clears throat> Together, let's look at the reign of this greater king. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. And the Lord's righteous reign. The Lord's righteous reign. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Of all the things for which David might have prayed, verse 1 shows that he highly valued a righteous kingdom. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. David mentions this quality three times in the first four verses. And when David speaks of Solomon doing justice, he refers to that royal exercise of rule and decree. And his prayer then is that God would grant David's son 
the ability to rule and judge in conformity to God's own righteous character. In this way, God would rule, or Solomon would rule as God's effective and true representative. <clears throat> this should be our desire for anyone who exercises authority in society, in the church, in the home, that the one in authority would speak, act, and make decisions that are consistent with God's word. And in this respect, Psalm 72 sets an important example for us. Like David, we should pray for civil leaders and for church leaders that they would be uh, righteous in their conduct, in their teaching, in their leadership. David's prayer for Solomon is also a great prayer that any parent can pray for any child. That through faith, he or she might receive God's righteousness. In verse 2, David amplifies his prayer, appealing to God. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And here David joins righteousness with the defense of the weak and needy, those who would greatly benefit from a righteous rule. And the results of such leadership are encouraging for all people. Verses 3 and 4. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. <clears throat> Righteous rule is seen here to bear fruit. The mountains represent the extremities of the land that are usually barren. And yet, under a righteous reign, they yield a great bounty. Mountains don't normally do that. So this is something beyond the norm. The fruitfulness of the land is secured for all. As the poor are defended, the children are delivered from poverty, evil oppressors are put down. And what David depicts for Israel under righteous rule is figuratively true for the spiritual side of a believer in Christ. First blessing of salvation is righteousness, the result of which is spiritual blessing. It's only, David insists, in righteousness that the peace and blessing of God are gained. So that until we're right with God, there's no more important issue for us to address. The righteousness which David prayed for didn't come to God's people through his son Solomon. Rather, it comes through his greater son, Jesus. We see that throughout this psalm. David's aspirations were not achieved in Solomon's reign, but only accomplished <clears throat> in the kingdom of Christ. David and Solomon are just forerunners of Christ. And we can see David's prayer is the longing of the entire Old Testament for the Savior who comes in the New Testament. Through Jesus, the whole of God's realm is blessed, just as Isaiah foretold, Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, it's true that Solomon began his reign in this manner which uh, David prayed for. But in time... Solomon turned away from this path. He turned to idolatry and began afflicting the poor. 
And so David's prayer would have to await its fulfillment in the life of Christ. The true kingdom of glory bringing salvation to God's people would have to await the one who alone was both worthy and equipped to fulfill Psalm 72. (coughs) So Jesus came not only to show that righteousness, but also to give that righteousness. He conveys God's gift to sinners through faith in him. Romans five one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus grants righteousness by cleansing believers of their sins and then clothing them in his own perfect righteousness, Romans 3. Then by his spirit, he renews the minds of the believers in true godliness, Ephesians 4, and all the blessings of Christ's reign rest on the righteousness that he grants through faith alone, Galatians 2. And therefore, I need to slow down. Therefore, his church should emphasize those truths that Christ takes our sin and that we get his righteousness, that we would emphasize the biblical teaching of justification through faith. But then we would practice practical righteousness through godly biblical living. If righteousness is the first quality of the kingdom for which David prayed, then Christ's people need to demonstrate righteousness through faith. It's the great prayer of the Reformation. The Apostle Paul prayed that. Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the first characteristic, the righteous reign. Of the Lord. The second quality of the Lord's reign for which David prayed was for the Lord's boundless reign. His boundless reign, verses 8 through 11. So, in addition to being righteous, the Lord's reign is boundless. Verse 8 may have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, in Solomon's day, from sea to sea referred to the land between the Mediterranean. And the Arabian Seas, whereas the river would refer to the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia. The Euphrates is probably as far as an Israelite could think to the east. Tarshish was the farthest to the west. And Sheba and Seba were the southernmost bounds of their knowledge. And within those bounds were all the lands, as the Israelites of Solomon's age would know them. So the psalmist is really saying the Messiah's reign will be over all places. And so it has been as the gospel has traveled to every corner of the globe, bringing believers under Christ's reign to serve his kingdom. But not only will all lands come under Christ's rule, but all peoples will come under his rule. Look at verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So David is praying for distant peoples to worship his royal son. 
a petition that was partially fulfilled in Solomon's time by the praise offered by the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. And men and women from around the world have joyfully bowed before Jesus in faith, marveling at the grace of God found in him. If you think about it, the visit of the wise men to worship and bring gifts to the Christ child didn't end, but rather began the fulfillment of David's prayer. Matthew 2 says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. David's prayer is, may all kings fall down before him. And at Christ's birth, we have wise men or kings who fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now David realized that not all would bow willingly, but that Christ's enemies would lick the dust. Verse 9. In the final judgment, the realization makes surrender to Christ more urgent than ever. The great commentator Matthew Henry said, Before the Lord Jesus, we must all either bow or break. If we break, we're ruined. If we bow, we are certainly made forever. You know, I was struck by a story of uh, the Discovery 5 space mission years ago. But it was a multinational crew, and it included the Arabian prince, Sultan bin Salman el Saud. And he wrote about it, and he noted an unexpected unity within this multinational crew. He said, the first day or so, we all pointed to our countries, you know, and that's they're in space. He said, the third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were aware of only one Earth. However, when the space mission ended and they all came back, they reverted to their national identities. Men and women find a lasting unity only as they come together in submission to the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and who's claimed authority over all realms, all realms through his gospel. It's the basis on which he commissions the work of the church, Matthew 28. We talked about this last summer. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the book of Revelation shows the ultimate success of Christ's worldwide reign after his people have been gathered and his enemies cast out. Angels sing the words that I've been closing my prayers with for our series on both Mark and the Psalms, Revelation eleven fifteen, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, if Christ's kingdom were only righteous and boundless, it still might not appeal to us. For the simple reason we know how unworthy we are. So the third characteristic then encourages weak, sinful, and needy people like us because David prayed for the Lord's merciful reign. The Lord's merciful reign, verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. 
From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, it's typical for great kings to become increasingly consumed with their own affairs to the detriment of the weak and needy in the land. Solomon himself eventually became a great oppressor of the people of Israel, forcing them into virtual slavery for the building of his great projects. And you can find that in 1 Kings 12. In contrast, Christ declares, Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have an illustration, and there's actually lots of illustrations, but of Christ's readiness to hear the cry of the needy. You can see that throughout the Gospels. One example is he passed through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. A blind man heard him passing, Luke 18. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus' most significant ministry is for those whom he describes as poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5. Jesus is referring to repentant sinners who admit their spiritual poverty and their guilt before God, and they come to him for grace. And Jesus saves them by the work of redemption. As David foretold in Psalm 72, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Jesus looked on the suffering of the poor and the oppressed in Israel, and he was merciful. The blood of his people was so precious to Jesus that he gladly shed his own for their forgiveness. Only prideful folly would keep a sinner from seeking the forgiveness that Christ the Redeemer purchased on the cross for those who believe. Righteous, boundless, merciful. The fourth quality the Lord's, of the Lord's reign for which David prayed for was the Lord's eternal reign. The Lord's eternal reign, verses 15 and 16. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoke for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. David may have prayed for his son to live long. But that promise is only fulfilled in the divine Savior, Christ the Lord. David himself reigned for 40 years, as did Solomon. But like every other human ruler, they eventually have to pass on their throne. And yes, the subjects may cry out, long live the king. But they all know he's not going to live forever. How different is the reign of the Lord Jesus, 
who rules forever over an everlasting kingdom. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill David's prayer. Hebrews 1 gives us the answer. Starting at verse 8, it says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will <coughs> Excuse me. This is fun. You will roll them up like a garment that will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. So Jesus reigns. It endures. It lasts forever. Your years have no end. (coughs) Hebrews 7 teaches us. Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through, draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Therefore, those who trust in Christ know there will never be a moment in all eternity when he's not interceding for them on the basis of his perfect, finished work. There will never be a time in all eternity when Jesus is not able to send aid through the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. Prophet Daniel foretold that Daniel 7 His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Righteous, boundless, merciful, eternal, and last it's blessed. The Lord's blessed reign. Starting in verse 17. See, the lives changed by Christ become witnesses. <coughs> Excuse me. Lives changed by Christ become witnesses of his grace to others. So that where he reigns, everyone under him is subjects. His church is blessed. David's prayers for Christ's reign. They show us that we're blessed. And it's easy to look out and think we're not. We have issues. We have problems. We have people that don't get along. We need this. We need that. 
But David's prayers for Christ's reign show that faithful churches should never worry over the need for money or spiritual gifts or numerical growth, but are simply called to serve Christ in a living faith. Where Christ reigns, there's blessing as God's people are moved to respond generously to needs and opportunities. There's blessing as the Holy Spirit works with power. There's blessing as many are drawn into the church as the word of God goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is not God's willingness to answer David's prayer in answer to our needs, but rather the faith of us, of Christ's people, to simply serve him in obedience, confidently relying on Christ's royal blessing through the biblical means of grace, the preaching of the word and prayer, sincere worship from the heart, fellowship, sacraments, all in accordance with the scriptures. As a result, David prays, the king himself is greatly blessed. Again, starting at verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Solomon's prestige extends far and wide. Even the queen of Sheba came to give him honor. How much greater is the fame of Jesus? How much more widespread is his honor? How much uh, greater is his name known? As long as Christ reigns, his name will be glorified. As long as people are blessed through the message of the gospel, more and more people will honor him until finally all nations will call him blessed. It's the certain result of Christ's reign in the world through his gospel by the means of the worship and witness of his church. This is David's prayer. So certain is he of receiving God's answer. So certain should we be of receiving God's answer, of the Lord's ultimate current and ultimate reign. Why would we be any more excited about any other project in comparison to the worship and service of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would we give our passion to worship glory or earthly riches when we're invited through faith not only to be saved but to enter into the service of him whose name will endure forever? So we read in Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The qualities of the Lord's reign for which David prayed or that it would be righteous, boundless, merciful, eternal, and blessed. And if that's true, and I believe that it is, then let's return to our original question. What does Christmas look like now? I mean, if the Lord's blessing comes through our worship and service to him, what does that look like? Let me go back to Philip and Lori Seeley. They've said there's been glimpses of grace at every turn as they've gotten one bad report after another. Laurie wrote this week, 
Friends stepped in and helped cover hotel costs when we got unexpectedly stuck. New acquaintances have provided homes for us to stay in, a car to drive back and forth to treatment, and funds to buy food. A total stranger in the pharmacy line paid for a prescription that insurance had denied. Speaking of insurance, a fierce tribe of friends went all the way to the insurance commissioner of Mississippi when our health care provider denied coverage for Phillips' treatment, and we got approved. A cousin came in to provide care for Philip as I took a quick trip home. Some generous folks bought a, me a plane ticket home to briefly connect with our kids midway through this extended mess. They have two teens. Philip's college roommate flew in to provide much-needed friendship, laughter, and support. At each twist and turn of this trial, people have appeared providing tangible assistance before we could even ask. And more prayers have been prayed on our behalf than I have hairs on my head. Thank you all for your care for us. We are so deeply humbled by it all. <clears throat> she continues. Actually, she's been posting these long things every day about Philip's progress. <clears throat> she says, Many of you have been praying fervently for Philip's healing, and that's a good prayer. Don't stop. However, while healing is indeed what we desire, I can honestly say what Philip and I desire even more is that God's will be done, even if it runs counter to our own, and right now it is. Just as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, so do we. Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass, yet not as I will, but as you will. If God would be pleased in his omniscient wisdom to counterintuitively use cancer as part of the tilling of the soil with the seeds of the gospel, he says, do I want that? No. But I trust my God because he's good in the process of being sovereign. He loves my husband, he loves me, he loves my kids, and he loves this community. We firmly believe that he knows best what we need most. We firmly believe that he knows best what we need most. Our greatest hope is ultimately not in being cured, but being in Christ. At the epicenter of our existence is this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we're getting anything right in this trial, if you're seeing anything real in our suffering, there's any beauty in all of this awful ugliness is because of Christ in us. It is only because of Christ in us. He is our hope in this life and throughout all eternity. Now, those of you who know me well know I'm not just spewing trite verbal trinkets here, but pouring out my heart. As Job's world gave way, he said, shall we accept good from God and not adversity? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. She goes on. We remain in a place and position where much is unknown to us. We remain stuck in circumstances that are hard and that hurt. I have a dear friend who regularly reminds me that faith is not an anesthetic. In other words, it doesn't take the pain away, and I won't pretend that it does. But while faith is not an anesthetic, it is an anchor. An anchor keeping our battered souls steady and even somewhat still in this storm, and that's a glorious gift. 
Friday night she wrote, Tonight as our own world feels as if it's giving way, we echo the world words of that suffering saint of old, and we do so because of the work of the suffering Savior of old, Jesus who died for sinners, among whom I know I am the worst. As I've said before, we are hurting, but we are held, held by the strong hand of divine hope and help. Laurie Seeley is a worship leader. She has a number of worship uh, CDs. She used to tour. Now she's helping plant a church in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. By the way, the, the week that Philip discovered the melanoma, he named his church Hope Presbyterian. And Philip said, not because we hope it's going to work. And not as the world defines hope, but as God defines hope, we have an eternal hope of glory that's rooted in the gospel that this world needs to hear. And the Lord alone has found our hope, our help, and our ultimate healing for his reign, his righteous, boundless, merciful, eternal, and blessed. And according to these verses, the Lord God of Israel should be praised for the wondrous things he has done. Believers can look throughout the Bible for the wondrous acts of God, yet the wonder of all wonders is the saving work that God has achieved through Christ as the Lord, his own royal son. In this way, Psalm 72 summarizes the entire Bible as David prays for the coming of the Lord's righteous reign through the promised Messiah whose boundless, merciful, eternal, and blessed kingdom will bring salvation and fill the earth with God's glory. And that's why Philip and Lori are looking forward to Christmas. Because they're looking forward to the coming of the Lord. Because they're looking to get a glimpse of the greatness of our Lord. And I hope that you are too. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. As always, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you've given us a Messiah who comes to rule and reign forever and ever. I pray that we might thank you for this psalm, a psalm that you've given to us to supply words of prayer when we have no words, praise and honor when we're down and depressed, and when we're overwhelmed, may we look up and get a glimpse of the greatness of our Lord. May we see your hope in this psalm. And so work in each of us this Advent as we learn from these messianic psalms, seeing what they teach us about Christ the Lord. Thank you for drawing us ever closer to your son, our Savior, and remind us once again that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.